Hello and welcome to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award Shortlist Podcast, part of the International Literature Festival Dublin. My name is Jessica Trainer, And I'm Caelan Hogan. In this special podcast series, we will explore each novel in detail as we chat exclusively to the authors shortlisted for the award, the winner of which will be announced on the 22nd of October. For the first time, the winner announcement will take place as part of International Literature Festival Dublin, which, like the award, is sponsored by Dublin City Council. Celebrating 25 years this year, the award is the world's most valuable annual prize for a single work of fiction in English or translated into English, worth €100,000 to the winner or winners. On today's episode, we'll be discussing Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead by Olga Tokarczuk, translated by Antonia Lloyd-Jones and published by Fitzcarraldo Editions. And I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with the work of Olga Tokarczuk from her fabulous other novel Flights, which is also available in translation and also from her Nobel laureateship. Um, but Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead is just one of the most individualistic, singular, quirky novels that I've read in the last couple of years. And it was a wonderful introduction for me as a reader to Olga's work, which I'd been planning to get to for a long time. This is a novel that is has kind of been packaged as a murder mystery. But like I think all of the best novels with a mystery element, you don't feel that strand creeping in until quite late in the work. And really, it's a novel about this uh, wonderfully singular, eccentric woman, Janina, living in this quite remote area on the, the Polish-Czech border. And she is a deeply sensitive woman, but also a deeply practical woman. She works uh, over the winter as a caretaker in this tiny, tiny rural village where people come to hunt. And it's her kind of obsession with and connection with the landscape that fuels a lot of the book's events. Um, people in the local community, uh, powerful people within the local community start to turn up dead. And there is a sense that perhaps the environment and the animals are taking their revenge on the people who have exploited them for so long. And so there's a kind of a blackly comic vein to this novel. Um, But also Yanina is just fantastic company. She's a translator of Blake and she's a, a, a retired engineer, but she's also really into astrology. So she has these kind of philosophies around people which centre in on their their date and moment of birth. And she does these really detailed charts that look at their uh, the trajectories of their fate. Um, but it's all done in this really intriguing scientific way. And she is one of life's keen, keenly sensitive observers. Um, and she's a wonderful person to spend time with. Um, But her uh, involvement in the central events of the novel only kind of gradually becomes clear to us uh, in a way that I think is incredibly masterfully handled. And that humour really comes through. And I think it's remarkable the way this novel kind of changes our whole idea of of the way we eat meat and, um, you know, sort of the cultures that grow up around it. 
uh, and sort of subverts our thinking almost. It reminds me of uh, David Foster Wallace's Consider the Lobster. I don't know if you ever read that, but again, with humor and, and uh, you know, a very individual approach um, can really challenge our views. So I'm going to read this short extract. I could feel my foot going entirely numb, stiffening and tingling. As I walked, I dragged it behind me, limping. And there was more. For months, my eyes had never ceased to water. My tears would flow for no reason, out of the blue. I decided that today, despite the pain, I'd go up the slope and survey the world from above. Everything was sure to be in its place. Maybe that would calm me down, loosen my throat, and I'd feel better. I wasn't at all sorry about Bigfoot, but as I was passing his cottage from afar, I thought of his dead hobgoblin's body in the coffee-coloured suit, and then the bodies of all my acquaintances came to mind, alive and happy in their homes. And I thought of myself too, of my foot, and of Oddball's thin, wiry body, it all seemed shot through with appalling sorrow, quite unbearable. As I gazed at the black and white landscape of the plateau, I realized that sorrow is an important word for defining the world. It lies at the foundations of everything. It is the fifth element, the quintessence. And I think that Yanina is something of a visionary as well. And despite this wonderfully earthy, pragmatic voice and her wonderful way of describing people, everyone has a nickname, Bigfoot, Oddball, and, and that kind of adds to the comedy. But she does have this great, keen sensitivity. You know, she's an exposed nerve and, and she takes the sorrows of the world upon herself. But she's also angry and it's a wonderful protest novel in a way. And it, it speaks to an entire kind of anti-authoritarian vein within Polish literature, which having read this book, I'm keen to dive more into in future. It definitely seems to, to explore that strange phenomenon of existence and of sorrow and, and you know, not from a point of sort of hopelessness, but one of, of almost fascination. Uh, so I'm very excited to listen to your conversation with Olga and Antonia. So let's go to that now. I suppose I'd just like to start by asking a couple of general questions and either of you can jump in with answers, whoever feels comfortable. Um, but I suppose this, I have had the pleasure of reading 10 books that are shortlisted for the International Dublin Literary Award. Um, and one of the really interesting things for me has been to look at the various different themes that have emerged over the groups of books as a whole. Um, so I read five in, in very close detail. Um, and then my my co-host, Kaylin, who will be doing some of the other interviews, got to read the other five. So we had a, quite a struggle and a tussle over who got what. <laughs> and there were a few books we fought over because we both wanted to read them. Um, but one of the things that emerged for me in reading a number of the books was that there did seem to be an exploration of the psychology of violence in the human race and also a sense of a lost connection to the natural world that ran through a lot of the work. Um, and Olga, maybe you could talk to me a little bit um, about how you explore that sense of a lost connection to the natural world in Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead, because I think it's it's a theme in the book that is very, very moving. The book feels like an elegy for 
that connection to the natural world and that sense of the mystic maybe that Blake manages to infuse his work with. Mm -hmm. This is not the first time I, um, I was interested in those field of subjects because also in my previous book, the nature was, uh, was very present and very um, full of energy. So, um, but this time, first time I'm, I created nature as a, as a kind of character, as a being, being inside of, of, this, of this story. And uh, you have to also remember that the book was written in 2008 and published in 2009. So it's, from my point of view, quite old book. But I think that the, 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 subject, uh, the subject of nature and our lost connection with, with nature is today, nowadays, we are talking in the COVID uh, um, situation. It's uh, very painful. So I think that we have to do something much more um, meaningful than only talk about it and write about it. And so now we are face to face with really dangerosity. Absolutely. And I think that action that you're talking about is something that that is the action that Yanina takes in the book and um, that she decides in her own way, uh, within her own philosophy, to, to fight back. Um, and can you talk a little bit about that, that struggle and what she's struggling against? Mm -hmm. When you mentioned that the, there are many books uh, connected, connected in a way with the subject of violence, I think that the artists, the writers, they can feel very good something which is in the air. That uh, we have now problems with violence and you can see that everywhere is more or less the same. And, but there is, perhaps it, it will sound very controversial, but I would say something uh, perhaps strange, but anger is a, it, it is a good way uh, on, it's, it's a good emotion, I would say, because only this emotion can change really something. Of course, in my novel, when, I, when the novel appeared in Poland, uh, some people were very, uh, how to say, um, disappointed. Um, and they didn't understand, in fact, what I, really, what, what I really did in this book, because they treated Janina Dusheiko very literary as and um, has story as a kind of uh, um, uh, Antonia, uh, please help me, jako rodzaj apelu albo pokazania drogi, w jaki się należy zachowywać. They took it literally and they saw it as a sort of appeal as, as for action, as an example to follow, as if you should do what she was doing. So yeah, they treat it as an appeal for action, yeah, and uh, and of course this is a misunderstanding, a very deep misunderstanding because every novel, literature in general, it uses different level of reality. It is something in between the reality and I don't know, mythology and psychology. So only in literature we can say things which are, non, which are really 
not um, expressible in uh, in 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 the reality real reality in the reality of media of newspaper and so on so i treat literature as a very complicated way of uh, communication you can say so many things you can show the un unthinkable things also in literature which is not possible in uh, in uh, media for instance or even in um just regular um discussion with another human being mm. I think that's so interesting what you say about anger being a, a, a positive force at times and it is a force for change. And and I think sometimes, even though we do live in a very violent time, we, we don't make space in our lives for the negative emotions, for the anger and the sorrow. And I think there's a wonderful quote in the in the book that I love about sorrow is the fifth element, it is the quintessence. And I think Yanina is very attuned to the constant sorrow of the world, whereas the society around her wants to shut that aspect out and only focus on the positive, even when the positive is 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 violence, is negative traditions. Um, I I. I think, do you agree with Yanina's philosophy that the, the, the world is full of this kind of sorrow? Yes, this is also my uh, vibration. Hmm. And I think that uh, this understanding of sorrow, which is everywhere, is also taking you... Uh, uh, what we can have from this sorrow, it's sorrow is always going to empathy, um, while anger going to wisdom, I think, to um, recognition, what is good, what is bad, and so on. So I think that those, those two a little bit forgotten emotions are very important for us. Yes, yeah, and I think we probably need to find ways to make more space for them in our lives. And I think that's the example that Yanina sets for, for me as a reader, rather than any sense of incitement to violence, mm -hmm. there is an incitement to an awareness of the world an openness to the world, even to its more painful aspects, um, uh, to a world where, as you say, that the petals are falling from the flower. Um, and I'd love to talk a little bit about the setting of, of the book, because I think for, for readers in Ireland, um, this this part of, of Poland, this landscape, it will be very unfamiliar, quite exotic for us. Um, can you talk to me a, a little bit about the, the, the place that the book is set and, and how it's changing, maybe for the worse at the moment? Mm -hmm. uh... It's a very weird part of Poland because it became Polish uh, after the Second uh, World War and never been Polish, really. Uh, it belonged to um, Czech Republic, to Germany for a while only, and to Habsburg Empire for the most of, of the time. So we call it in short Kotlina, which is in fact Kotlina Kłodzka, like Klotzko Valley. And it's a small tail on a on a southern border of Poland. You can see if you have a look on map, you, then you can see such a small tail. And um, it's a really a little bit forgotten place because it was it was never really culture Polish taken by Polish culture. So it's still a little bit nowhere. And uh, 
beautiful in a sense of geographical views, but also very interesting because of its history. For me, it has always the, the sense of, uh, how to say, it's foggy. It's a beautiful uh, soft mountains, full of fog. So it's very nostalgic and there is a kind of uh, sadness in a way, uh, which makes me much more uh, reflectors people than mm, in, in other places all over the world. And so mm, I noticed that there are many mm, people like artists and uh, writers, they recently they moved into this uh, Kotlina Kotska. So we have a very good now society to create such a small um, society and we're making a fest, literary festival there. So I really, even talking about this piece of uh, land, um, uh, I feel always a little bit moved. Mm. Mm, yes, it's a it's a definitely a, a character in the novel itself, this place, you know, and I think it's it's wonderful to think about that notion of borders, the places between countries or that have shifted over history. And, and there is this wonderful sense throughout the book that just across the border in, in the Czech Republic, there are there is this almost a utopia. Um, you know, there's these sunlit uplands where the deer can be safe, <laughs> which is That's not true. And when the book was published in Czech language, in Czech Republic, the, my Czech readers, they it was so funny for them. They was laughing. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. Well, at least somebody was very pleased with the depiction of their country <laughs> in this. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about William Blake, who is, of course, and through his his words, another character within the book. Um, and I was fascinated as I read the book by the parallels between Janina and Blake, uh, by, by she with her background as an engineer, uh, he with his very practical work as a draftsman, but also this sense of the mystic uh, and the visionary uh, that seems to connect them both. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you came to Blake and how Blake came to be so important for Janina um, and Dizzy as characters in the novel? Uh, I think that in Poland, Blake is um, not just one um, poet from somewhere writing in English, but a really very well um, felt character because of uh, his um, um, tendency and feeling of and, and philosophy of rebellion. So, um, Blake is treated uh, here as a, um, somebody who is always against establishment. So he is in a way philosophical anarchist. He has also this kind of sorrow you mentioned before. So as we can recognize um, life as a urlo earth, so it changes everything. His sensitivity for pain all around us pain around us um, makes him um, very close to this kind of sensitivity which Janina Dusheiko has and also which is mine and I don't know the people whom I know and 
you know that Polish poet, very famous poet, uh, laureate of Nobel Prize, Czesław Miłosz, he was also fascinated by William Blake. And I think that there is something very in common for us. By us, I mean the group of people with this kind of sensitivity, no matter if they are Polish or English or whatever. And William Blake is a very um, sig significant figure in for this kind of uh, sensitivity. So for, there is also important, you mentioned before, sorrow as an as a emotion, as a feeling. And I think that William Blake could, in a gen genial, genius way, express this kind of sorrow. When you see that uh, there, are, there is a, so much pain around us and what we can do with this pain, it's very Buddhistic in, in fact, or I don't know um, how to express though this um, Blake's um, intensity, intensity of, of, of perception. So uh, for me also William Blake is a philosoph philosophical anarchist or um, a man who is always against, uh, against an establishment. Uh, so it's a figure very important for me. And it's a really coincidence that in Kotlina Kotska, there are th uh, three from four translate Blake's translator into Polish. Ah, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. So those people uh, also decided to move into Kotlina. I don't have answer why and what's really happened. Coincidence. Yes, but I think it's wonderful to be guided by those coincidences that we find because yeah. they hold so much meaning, don't they? That's so wonderful to discover. Thank you. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about astrology in the novel as well, because even since the novel was, was first written, um, astrology has become so fashionable again, especially among a younger generation, um, you know, younger than me, who, who seem to really be keen on what it can offer. But I think Yanina's take on astrology is so individual um, and so uh, inspired by her own philosophy. Um, so talk to me a little bit about Yanina and astrology and, and what it offers her as a character. Thinking about Yanina, I wanted to create a, a character who would contest generally accepted uh, customs. And I long time I thought about it, what she should do, how she should appear. And then I, I had a kind of deep insight. Yes, astrology. Astrology as a, as a, mm, a field, as an art, uh, not values uh, nor interested uh, by intellectual establishment uh, nowadays. So people are making fun from astrology, those people who are ed high educated and very serious people. But for me as a psychologist from my profession, I treat rather astrology uh, as an old art of understanding human behavior. So for me, it's really amazing that astrology many hundreds years ago, thousands years ago, invented a very clever system of typology 
uh, how to understand that the people are not the same and they have the different attitudes, different uh, characters, different temperaments and created this beautiful, in a way, mandala of signs of zodiac. This is really something astonishing. This is like a huge, big art, uh, human art. So no wonder that you can find in astrology many interesting things. And sometimes that it's they are very um, clever. So no wonder this, that new generation i didn't know that astrology is in fashion now. very much well, so again, coming back <laughs> but in a way we can understand astrology also as a something which connecting us with uh, nature with uh, universe with uh, nature and cosmos in the the, the biggest uh, in a biggest sense in a broadest sense of our being here in somewhere lost in a in the cosmos in the universe mm. so i'm happy that the astrology is in fashion really i didn't know about yes. it and um janina using astrology as a way of understanding uh world and especially understanding of human motivation and uh, it's uh, it can be treated as an alternative psychology i think mm. in her in her understanding Yes. Yeah. And I think it's part of her character in a sense that, you know, that the entire novel seems to be pushing against a kind of a dangerous individualism that not only shuts you off from the natural world, but also shuts you off from responsibility um, mm -hmm. for your actions and for your impact on that world. And I think that the people who Yanina pushes against in the book are the people who are completely disconnected from the natural world, except for the violence that they create, you know, for the destruction that they create. But it, it should be mentioned that astrology never, mm, never tried to be deterministic mm -hmm. uh, art. It's much more open and it gives us a place for, for our own decisions. So, yes. And uh, I, was, I was quite creative uh, in um, treating astrology. So my publisher in Poland, they decided to take a, a astrolog, astrologic consultant to, to check is everything, uh, is everything okay in the book. And this consultant is very famous Polish astrologer who um, support me in my uh, ideas. Because I don't know if you noticed that uh, Janina Dusheiko, she invented a one kind of syndrome, astrologi astrological syndrome of lazy Venus. Yes. <laughs> and this um, famous astrologer, Leszek Veres, he said, wow, this is very good concept. <laughs> uh, really seriously. So I'm very proud if I can put something to the, the, the great uh, wisdom of astrology. Yes, well, I think any science that is willing to admit great ideas from the literary world is a science that I can get behind. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you, Olga. Um, I just would love to talk a little bit about the, your use of the murder mystery convention in the book, because I think it's it's such an interesting thing. I 
when you read about the book, it's it's something, you know, at the back of the book, they always have to put a little summation of what the book is about. And, you know, for me, the murder mystery element is so subtle and nuanced and really not the point at all. But it is a very easy way to sum up the book for people who haven't read it. Um, but what I love about your use of this convention is how much you subvert it. Uh, you know, the, the convention is absolutely working for you and Janina rather than you having to fit within its parameters. Um, can you can you talk to me a little bit about how you approached the, the murder mystery convention? Was it something that interested you? Would you be a fan of mystery novels? Um, is it something you would like to do again? Or was it something that rose organically from the story as you started to write it? Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very special time for me um, when I started to think about this novel because I was uh, just shortly after after finishing Flights, which was a very demanding book to write. And then um, um, it was a kind of accident also because I realized that I have an agreement with my publishing house that I should, I'm supposed to write another book. And then, oh my God, I started to think to write something simple and easy to write. And uh, I realized that just to take on my table um, a form of genre, uh, detective story genre, will be very easy to, to manage with, uh, with entire story and so on. And then I started to think about the plot. And of course, uh, all those things connected with animals, with animals right, with nature, with uh, uh, ecology, came into my mind. And for a while, I didn't know how to connect those two things, the, the detective story genre and animal rights. And for the, for the second thought, I, I, I was decided to take a risk and to tell about animals in such a way. Because, you know, it's very hard to tell about um, suffering of, of animals. I, I tried many times, and there is also always dangerosity that you can, um, you can become um, just bombastic or too sentimental, too didactic to, um, I don't know, political. So it's really very hard to find a um, new soft way to tell entire, to, to tell about this problem. So I think that the most important thing who saved me, in fact, was this kind of black humor, which is in this book, because it couldn't work without uh, black humor. And of course, the detective story. I never be a fan of detective stories. I I know only Agatha Christie some some of her books, and I know I don't know some small uh, books I've read somewhere on during my holidays. Never been interested in detective story, but this time it seemed to me very simple. In fact, you have to have that body on the beginning. And then to do something more to just to to trace the the the, the story to to the beginning to understand what's really happened. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I had a real pleasure to write Detective Story and perhaps I will come back to, to that. <laughs> but um, now I am doing the, an, another experiment with horror road. Oh, I'm now God. writing a novel which will be a horror novel. Wonderful. Oh, I'm very excited to hear more about that. Um, thanks so much for that, Olga. I, Antonia, I'd love to ask you a few questions now about the, the translation process and about your own work, too, because I have to say, um, you know, it's I, I'm always intrigued by the translation process. But there are some times when the, the voice of the translator manages to capture the voice of a character with such skill and precision that you feel like you might be reading it in the original language. And I think that's the case here with with Yanina, who is such a singular voice. Um, but I'd love to ask you about your connection with with Polish literature in general, because you've won many awards and you have a very close collection with translating Polish literature. I'd love to know what drew you to Polish literature in the first place. I've only ever won Polish awards. <laughs> They're just as good as all the others. <laughs> but um, I'm always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Oh, I get no. into the shortlist for everything. But... <laughs> <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, well, I came to Polish via Russian mm. originally mm -hmm. because it was impossible to study Polish when I was a student. Um, but uh, I read a wonderful thing the other day that Philip Roth said, which was, uh, I'm paraphrasing it because I read it in Polish, but he was a great fan of Central European literature and did a lot to make sure it was published in English. Thank God he did that. I mean, he really did everyone a big service. And he said that over there in the countries that were under communist domination, nothing is free, but everything has meaning. Whereas in America and in the West, everything is possible but nothing has meaning. And I think there's a lot in that, that I was drawn to Central European literature because it not only has meaning, but it finds very unusual ways to express that meaning. And that's partly, you know, it has that defiant spirit to it. And it's often because of centuries of literature being forced in a way to serve the fight for independence. So literature has had to find ways to be cryptic and to sneak around the censorship, which gives rise to some rather wonderful, interesting ways of using literature. So unlike, you know, I, I generally find with Western literature where everything is possible, you just get straightforward stories, which are very often quite personal and tell you quite a lot about life as a human being at a very intimate level. But Central European literature has this added dimension. It really does relate to the human condition much more, but in a, in a very interesting, oblique way. And often, as Olga has been saying, through dark humour, through a sort of... Um, defiance and irony and I love all that and I think you know like Olga I'm an anarchist so I like literature that's sticking its tongue out at authority which Yanina Dusheko does 
by the shed load. Absolutely. It's so interesting to hear you say that, Antonia. And without flattering my own nation, I, th- I think there are a lot of parallels between Irish <laughs> literature. I and... remember being in Ireland once with Paweł Hula, who's a Polish novelist. Yes. And I kept very, very quiet about where I'm from. I let Pavel do the talking and say, I am from Poland. And they were all going, up the pole, up the pole. And and saying, yes, we have lots in common. We we come from Catholic countries where we're oppressed by the neighbouring empires. So it was quite interesting hearing that, seeing that Irish-Polish connection. Yes, I think it's also about responses to authority as well, because even after 100 years of independence in Ireland, we're not terribly sure if we like our own authority either. So there is always a reaction and a subversive attitude, which is which is interesting. And that black humour as well is very, very much there. There's a lot in common between Polish and Irish uh, literature. I'm thinking of J.M. Singh. I'm thinking of Playboy of the Western World and, you know, a murderer being hidden and everybody thinking he's a hero. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's that's really true. And um, 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 Irish literature is very popular in Poland, really. I think that Polish people better understand Irish literature than, than, sorry, Antonia. No, it's my best. It's my favourite literature in English, definitely. But well, it's right? wonderful Completely. to hear. That. I agree with you, Olga. It's so true, and there is a definite mutual understanding there, isn't there? I mean, I, it's, <laughs> you're right. It's why I was so interested, Olga, to hear you say that there was some negative response to uh, the depiction of of Polish society. I think probably because in Ireland we write a lot of that kind of literature, which is very critical um, of our own society, and especially now as we come to this hundred years of Irish independence um, after having spent much of the mid 20th century celebrating how wonderful we were, (laughs) we are starting to realise that we have actually perpetrated a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, terrible things on our own society. And we we have come to a reckoning of that. So I found nothing controversial (laughs) in your novel, you know, but I am. It's fascinating to hear about those different cultural responses. Um, and, and Antonia, just when you came to Yanina's voice and how to channel this wonderful, singular voice that's both practical and mystical, um, how did you find that challenge? Well, it, um, Olga had really done all the work for me because um, she created this voice. And there's something about when you translate a first-person narrative, and I think I've heard Olga say this before about writing in a first-person narrative, Uh, To me, it's like getting on the tram rather than driving the car myself because the tracks are there, they're straight, and you've got this voice all the way through, which is also channeling the other voices. So once you find that, you just follow the tracks. And um, the difficulty with this was that I realised at some point that obviously you, the reader has to stay with her right through the book so right through whatever it is 250 pages so they have to sympathize with her and she is frankly pretty eccentric she does some way out things that nobody should really be sympathizing with but the reader needs to become her accomplice and you've got to find that balance I realized that this was the whole thing about the translation hinged on keeping that reader's sympathy 
all the way through and making the reader her accomplice. And when I first translated it, I reached a point where I had, as it were, finished. And something was just nagging me. I just knew something was wrong about it. And instinctively, I can't really explain this, but I realized that somehow the sensibilities of an English language reader are slightly different from those of a Polish reader, inevitably. I, I can't explain it, but they are. And so I thought she would, the way I had her, which was pretty close to the way she was written, I thought she would annoy an English language reader too soon and they wouldn't stick with her. So I, I did a, another run right through the whole translation and I kind of reined her in a bit and I made her sound slightly less eccentric and a bit more like you and me. And it's very interesting, I, I did a reading of the audio book earlier this year. And when I was doing that, I realized that when you read a book aloud, of course, you're adding another layer of interpretation. And I've been doing readings at, at public events where I've given her a bit of a slightly wacky sound because I was only reading short bits and I wanted to catch the audience's attention. But I realized that when I was reading the whole thing through, at first I started by kind of acting her. And I realized that was, the producer said after a few chapters, are you sure this is going to work? Kind of thing? and made me stop and I thought, oh my God, this is wrong because I'm adding an interpretation to her. Whereas I have to keep her neutral for the listener as well as the reader. So I started again and I read her just as if she was me, completely flat uh, without kind of hamming her up. Mm -hmm. And that was much more effective because then the reader or listener sticks with her. And that, that was the crucial thing. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting because I think a number of, of, of writers I know are always quite nervous when actors read their work because of that added layer of interpretation. And when you are writing, of course, you are trying to keep all of that performative stuff in the subtext so that the reader can tease it out themselves. Um, but it's it's so interesting to hear that about the difference in sensibilities as well. Um, and and I think that that is the, the real talent and skill of the translator that I find quite, you know, fabulous and mystifying that, of course, there is that left brain approach um, and the knowledge of language, but there's also that feeling and understanding of the text. And I think that that really comes through uh, in this in this translation, which makes it such a pleasure to read. Um, and I've, I have to say, one of my favourite moments in the book, which got me really thinking about translation, was the moment where Dizzy and Yanina are translating Blake. And I thought to myself, OK, hang on. So they are taking a, a Polish version or they're translating an English the original of Blake into Polish, but we're reading it in English and we're reading a version that's translated two ways. W was there a lot of conversation between the two of you on that moment? I just thought that was a wonderful was. brain melting <laughs> moment. <laughs> I was rebellious about this. I, I, I thought it was deeply counterintuitive <laughs> to retranslate Blake. And I said, I can't do that. I can't leave that up. And Olga said, please, you can't leave it out. And then Jennifer Croft, who's Olga's other translator, was staying with me. And Jennifer's 20 years younger than me and not nearly as rigid and kind of <laughs> rebellious. So she said, well, I think I would do something with that, you know, find a creative way. So she got me thinking. And... Um, as Olga has said, 
it's called Lina Kwodska, the Kwodsko Valley, attracts all these artistic people, including three translators of Blake. <laughs> and Olga, am I right that you had used translations of Blake that existed? So there are there's there's a quatrain that appears in four different versions. Mm -hmm. And did you take those from existing translations of Blake by those people? No, no, because they are translate. No, they are not existing in four versions because they divided the the the, the body of the text into four. So there are no. I try to imagine my own uh, versions of Blake. The Yanina and Dizzy's translation. Yes. But when I was translating them back into English, <laughs> I realized that with deep respect to you. They're not very good compared <laughs> to the original. So then that was the kind of key to me, was to make them a little bit clunky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're not supposed to be, they're not intended to be that great. So, um, so then I, I managed to make them do it by following you again. You know, you're giving me the lead because I simply turn them into the same sorts of translation, as it were. Um, thinking, Blake, forgive me, Blake, forgive me. I'm sure he would understand completely and utterly. I think it was very funny, in fact. I think Blake would have loved it. Uh, I really do. And again, I so enjoyed reading that bit and, and thinking, you know, oh, I think I like Dizzy's version slightly better than Yanina's. And, you know, it was a lovely process for the reader to be involved in. Um, and I'm so glad I've had this wonderful chance to chat to the two of you about that moment because it, it has really stuck in my mind. Um, and look, just to, to finish off, um, I'd love to ask you both a little bit about libraries because this particular award um, is, is run through European libraries. It's the responses of various readers in various different libraries around Europe. It's one of the reasons I love this particular award and I look out for the shortlist every year because it's the books that the people, the readers have chosen, you know, and, and sometimes they're not books that were published yesterday. Um, uh, they've been around for a while, but you get that sense of the real love um, of of these books um, and the genuine kind of value that people have placed upon them. Um, and I'd love to know, uh, do you both make use of libraries? Have you been able to? I mean, I know, Antonia, you're nodding because you're a translator and it would be heresy if you didn't. But have you have you been able to use libraries recently during uh, the COVID crisis? Uh, is it a, a space you haven't been able to get to? Just talk to me a little bit about your relationships with libraries as writers and translators. Olga should say first, in Poland, they're so important. Mm, uh, just in the matter of the award, we are uh, nominated with Antonia the second time. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Many, many years ago, uh, my book House of the House of Night was nominated into this great, very democratic award. I like the idea that the library are nominating the, 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 the books, the authors, and it's really democratic in this world. Uh, um, I have to say that I wouldn't be a writer without libraries because as a child I used to spend a lot of time and I read a lot um, taking books from libraries 
and I was sure that library is a part of the world. And my the first time I uh, then I noticed as an adult person that we are living in a very privileged country, piece of the world, because there are so many countries that there is no such an idea like like public library. You can go and take a book. So it's really big privilege. And then I had to had possibility to read uh, really a lot, entire classics and uh, everything what uh, was not present at the shelf of my own private, our own private family uh, library. So I owe libraries very much, and I would like to just to say thank you. I, I completely second that, and um, uh, I grew up going to the children's library in Oxford and it was always a great treat and we'd come home with armfuls of books. My brother is now a children's librarian and, and public librarian in Nottingham so it goes very deep and um, in Poland too they have absolutely fantastic network of libraries that present writers work and organize a, a lot of literary events which is a wonderful thing and um, in Britain I've been sad to see how money's been taken away from libraries and it really is such an important resource and such a wonderful thing and I couldn't do my job for instance without the um, Polish uh, library in London which I go to a lot and there are wonderful people there who help me and um, it has been difficult during the virus I haven't been there at all um, since lockdown began in Britain and it is frustrating, absolutely. Um, and I've been using the British Library site, but um, really it's difficult not having the possibility to just go there and look things up. So let's hope all of this will change soon. <laughs> we can get back to normal. But immensely grateful to the libraries that nominated this book for the award and immensely grateful to the Dublin Prize for taking that approach, as Olga said. It's absolutely wonderful, as Olga said, a democratic prize. Um, so long may it live. Yes, and I think I'm hoping that, you know, resources like libraries, which we've all missed so much during this time, that we will and that we may take for granted. I think we do in Ireland as well, often take our library service for granted because it seems like such a lasting institution. Um, but I hope we'll all come out of this with a kind of a newfound appreciation and spend more time in our libraries. Um, I'm sure we'd all love to drop everything and go to one right now. <laughs> But I'd like to thank you so much uh, for giving us the time for this interview. It's been such a pleasure to talk to the two of you together. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to the other episodes as we count down to the 2020 International Dublin Literary Award winner announcement. Wherever you're listening from, we invite you to join us for the online awards ceremony broadcast from the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin on the 22nd of October at 11am Irish Standard Time. You can book your free ticket at www.ilfdublin.com and browse the other fantastic events in this year's International Literature Festival Dublin programme.